0: So, hi and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is
1: Graham Turner.
0: Hello, Graham. It's lovely to see you. Are you in the new house or the old apartment right now? I'm in
1: the old apartment at the moment, so I'm surrounded by <laughs>
0: surrounded by boxes
1: and 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 guitars, actually, <laughs> in, in this room. <laughs> But we're soon to move into a bigger house where I'll be—I'll have a little bit more room. I won't feel like I'm in a cupboard, and where you can put the
0: band back together.
1: Well, the the, the band is—we're um, all pretty old, you know, mind you. I, I look at Keith Richards and that latest photo that's been going around. Uh, the meme that's been going around with him in the 14th century, I guess, is a long way ahead of us. But we'll <laughs> see. We'll see if the band gets back together again. Certainly, I plan to get back to doing some playing once we actually get set, settled again.
0: Lovely. And uh, tell us, Graham, how are your, where your thoughts are trending at the moment. What are the things that are preoccupying you, interesting you?
1: Really, the last the last year or two, I've been writing mainly about contemporary Australian. Politics and really about the culture of politics, rather than the sort of the day-to-day uh, game that's that's involved. It's really about the way in which politics is uh, enacted and the way in which it's been reported. So the last the last couple of years, I've actually been writing more for a kind of public audience. Not that you know they're beating down my doors to <laughs> get copies of the book, but there I, I got to the point I think. Few years back where I thought I didn't want to do any big research projects, long-term research projects. I, I didn't feel that I had the energy to do that anymore. Uh, and I also just felt like I wanted to write um, what I thought for the general public and see if I could attract some some interest in the things I wanted to say. So that's what I've been, been doing for the last
0: couple of years. And What drew you to that? What drew you to that in the sense that whilst politics has always animated your work, it's tended to be politics inflected through or reflected onto literary texts, filmic texts, television texts, celebrities. Do you know what I mean? Both domestically and internationally.
1: Yeah, it is is a bit of a shift, I think. I think what happened really... It happened during lockdown, I guess. During lockdown here was, was pretty severe. And, uh, where I was living in New South Wales, the borders were closed to other states, but also, uh, where I was living, um, there were a number of other complications. There were fires and there were floods that meant mobility was severely limited for a couple of years. And I had just, I just finished putting together a a collection of academic articles that was kind of a B-sides collection, you know, the ones <laughs> the, the pieces you write for other people that get, get put out in big collections, you think, oh, I should have published that myself. You know, that that's better than that. So I actually put instead of a greatest hits package, I did a did a B sides package, and so that was the last real academic book, I guess. And I was sitting around thinking what to do next, and John Stratton got in touch, and he had been asked to co edit a series um, for Bloomsbury the 33 and a third series that they do of famous record albums, and they set up an Oceania uh, list, and John was one of the editors of that. asked if I wanted to do something for it, because years ago I used to write a lot about music. And um, so I actually dug back into the archive. I'd actually been doing work in the 80s and 90s on, on John Farnham, who was the, you know, the biggest-selling uh, Australian album, Of the of the time, well of all time, actually, but had been ignored by popular music studies because he's kind of daggy and naff and not cool. Anyway, I I I was interested in him as a musician, and um, so I said I'd do that. So I wrote this. They're just little thirty thousand word books that can be very personal, and you're encouraged to write in lots of different ways. The books are very very different. They're not they're not a house style. And so I wrote in a fairly personal way more than I would normally, and drew on my experience as a musician as well as my cultural studies background, and that was a lot of fun, and that kept me sane for the for the lockdown period, and made me think, well, actually, maybe that's the kind of writing I should be doing now. And so, I came up with this idea of writing a book of, called *The Shrinking Nation*, which was about the way in which the public culture had had um, deteriorated and how the politics. Uh, had become contemptible <laughs> and the way in which the mainly Murdoch-driven media had um, had been complicit with all this and actually made things worse. So the book ended up being something written about all of that, about the way politics had become um, toxic in the last 20 years in Australia.
0: So you would have grown up in... The long hegemony of the Liberal Country Party in Australia, yeah. uh, pretty much, almost until you would have gone to university, right? Yeah. And you grew up in a sort of lower middle class, working class part of Sydney. Yeah. People would have been pretty strongly labour oriented, Labour Party oriented. I'm assuming. Right. It was sort of middling where I was, but yeah, there was, a, yeah, there was
1: certainly there was certainly a lot of a lot of interest in the Labor Party where I grew
0: up. And growing up in that long liberal hegemony, which probably ended when you were just about finishing university, I'm thinking. Yeah. Is it, does it, it does feel qualitatively worse now after another somewhat interrupted but quite long period of liberal National Party hegemony? Yeah, it's a good question. I I think it does. And I, I think what the difference is that,
1: uh, under the, the, the Menzies era, era, there was still actually a, a sense of, uh, the possibility that government needed to be managed, that, that compromises could be made, that the purpose of, of politics was not necessarily power, but actually what you might do with it. And, um, even though, I mean, it's funny, we look back on Menzies now, he was a, you know, villain when I was growing up. But we look on him now as being somebody who was, you know, the more acceptable face of, of that kind of conservatism. Richard Nixon. And that's really because of what has followed him. And really what you had was a winner-take-all politics. And the aim was not to actually do anything for the country or to pursue better policy. The aim was to destroy the opposition. And so uh, that really reaches its peak with the election of Tony Abbott as Prime Minister Taking a leaf really out of the kind of approach the Republicans took under Newt Gingrich um, as a way of attacking Clinton and, and so on, so that everything that the government proposed was, was crap and everything had to be opposed. And there was no there was no memory about what they might have stood for before, and no no guilt or shame about changing their position and looking opportunistic. So the whole the whole thing um, stopped being about finding better policy resolutions for the country and came about, it came about winning the political battle. And they were helped to a great extent by the fact that, you know, we have a highly concentrated media and the media played along. They decided along. That it was more fun and following the game than doing people, the research into the policy.
0: For people unfamiliar with the Australian media landscape, whereas there are quasi-liberal newspapers in the United States and very few totally reactionary ones, and there is there are two liberal newspapers in Britain. One aimed at the working class. One aimed at the middle class. There is nothing approximating a liberal newspaper in Australia apart from the Financial Review. Uh, I would say. Yeah, that's right. Is that fair enough?
1: Yeah, because I mean, what what there is now there are there are smaller. There are smaller online newspapers. There's, you know, there's a Saturday paper and, and the Guardian Australia and so on. And and they're, you know, they're fighting the fight. They did poach quite a lot of disappointed journalists from other right. um, from other uh, outlets. And so they've got good quality journalism. But of course, it's a real struggle for them to to do what they do. And so what what they're really good at doing is providing informed comment but they don't actually have the kind of resources to do do much of the grassroots investigative journalism. So that's that's where the gap is, that there's still a little bit of that going on. But it means that politics is almost never subjected to really close policy analysis that has a sense of the history and is able to provide information. You've got people who've been around for a long time and they remember, and so they're able to make those kind of judgments. That's very different from having people who are ready to do the proper research and have the time
0: to do it. And I guess what you're talking about more broadly, apart from this media issue, is that there appears from what you're saying to be no longer any bipartisanship. Whereas there could be bipartisanship, particularly in the Senate. The Australian political system is modelled on a mixture of Washington and London. So as in Britain, the lower house forms the government. But as in the United States... The upper house is a house of review, but unlike the House of Lords, it's based on a state system. And there used to be a lot of bipartisanship in the Senate and much less party discipline. But from what you're saying, those days are gone.
1: Yeah, totally. And and it's not just the conservatives that are doing this, you know, refusing to play along. With, um, the Labor Party is guilty of that as well. And it's all about maintaining the identity of the party in order to secure power, so you know the Labour Party, for instance, has a lot of um, common policy positions, well, positions that are common really with with the Greens and some of the independents, but they wouldn't dream of working with them um, to get things through Parliament because it would look then as if they they actually had some power and they therefore might be more likely to get elected at the next election. So. You know it's utterly venal in terms of, of the way it works, and there's the idea of bipartisanship. Occasionally gets talked about, but it's you know it it is something that people still hope might happen, but it almost never does. And um, I don't think either party either of the major parties think that it's in their interest to be bipartisan if they can win
0: solo. And we we've mentioned Robert Menzies. When his great opponent, Ben Chifley, died in 1951, I think, for Menzies, it was a personal trauma, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, So close were they, despite being political opponents. Impossible to imagine that now. Although it's interesting, Malcolm Fraser and Gough Whitlam, who were terrible opponents, as it were, became friends and allies, partly because Fraser moved to the left. Uh, that's or, right, and or I think the party left him. You know, yeah, and I think really that's
1: that's the story of the last twenty odd years in in Australia, where you, there has been a, a major change in the purpose and the practice of politics. And you compare that to what might have happened forty years ago, it's another world. And of course, it's it's meant that Australia has been um, in a state of policy paralysis across many areas. Of public policy for the last twenty years, and that doesn't look like changing.
0: So, for the the blog that you write, ugly word, but mm-hmm. so is podcast. For the blog that you write, what are the things that you tend to focus on, and how do you find out about them, given <laughs> the, the the paucity yeah, well, I, of information? I'm,
1: from I'm still a news I'm still a news junkie at the time. I'm not as bad as I was. I, I can walk away. But no, the, well, you could, you could it, quit
0: any time. Is that what you're telling that's us? That's right. Just
1: back slowly away. <laughs> the, the the blog's got three sections. I, I set it up originally as a way to provide um, really continuing debate around the book, The Shrinking Nation, because it came out as a book. But of course, it's set in a point in time. A lot of the things I said in the book needed updating, some of them need changing. Some of the issues that I was talking about had, had moved on, et cetera. So I initially set the blog up as a way to provide sort of running commentary on the, on the issues that emerged from the book. But I also thought that I would include something on the state of universities, uh, which is dire in Australia and, and getting worse. And of course, you know, I've been involved in the universities and the policy uh, structures around higher education funding for a long time. So there's a section on that and then there's a kind of um i guess a, a miscellaneous category now which I'd use to write things like i wrote i've written a couple of pieces on the matildas for instance when they were they were making their run in the world cup and australia suddenly discovered that women could play a sport and be more exciting than the men <laughs> so that you know the blog has has those three sections and really it's a matter of what what catches my attention at the at the time and oh. um and um, what I I think needs saying and and hopefully to be saying something that isn't said elsewhere.
0: And uh, I've become aware of it only fairly recently when you very kindly sent a link to me along with um, some others. And the topics that I've been reading about, uh, as usual in your striking, uh, clear crystal prose, uh, have been to do with universities. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that, because I just recorded a podcast a couple of days ago with Michael Dele Carpini about the oh, yeah. extraordinary assault on universities in the United States, which has seen places that thought they were free of this crap, namely very wealthy private universities, succumb to right-wing onslaughts that have been applied or have occurred to public universities for a long time and it was yeah. remarkable listening to to michael so could you tell us what you see as being the the change the shift and so on in australia because from my way of thinking and some of the things of yours that i've read one could date this back as with many awful neoliberal interventions to the labor party and to the notion that anything's a university a lab shade a cat a telephone can all be declared universities <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. Certainly, you know, the, the, the the review, the, the changes in, in structure for the higher education system that occurred in the late 1980s that the Labor Party was responsible for. Um, we're still feeling the, the effects of that. They, um, for those who aren't aware of, well, there's probably hardly anybody can remember this stuff anymore. There was a binary, um, structure that had, Colleges of advanced education, a bit like the polys in the UK, that were more vocational in interest. Um, and then there were universe, traditional universities that were more research-oriented. The system was binary, but it was quite porous. People could move between, as, as did I, um, parts of the sector. And so they closed that down called everybody a university. So a lot of really terrible institutions um, by university standards had to prove that they were up to the mark. And, and you know, I did this in in various ways, but it was it was you know it was a system that for many years was founded on complete bullshit, and people were were pretending that they were doing wonderful things, and they were building up CVs, publishing rubbish, and so on. It's not you know I think that I think the academics did their best to mature past that, and I think the quality of academic work in Australia it has Im- improved dramatically, and as a place. For academics to think and study and talk, it's still a really good place. But the universities themselves got suckered by government by, by being threatened with funding cuts, then really bad funding cuts, and they fell for that routine where, you know, if you if you play nice and agree this time to something really deleterious, they might do better with you next time. Well, of course, they screw you the second time as well. You know that they know you're going to roll over. So there's absolutely no interest in, in playing ball. And so what's happened has been a massive shift in the way universities think about what they do. So university administrators think that what they're doing is trying to get money out of the government in order to survive. And what academics think they're doing is producing and disseminating knowledge. And and, and where they meet is is is... In deciding that they'll provide vocational training for, for people as part of their degree programs. That was initially a small part of what we did. And eventually now it's driving all the funding. So even research has to be industry related. And, and you would expect the Labor Party to be less um, difficult in these regards. But so far, uh, they really haven't, haven't made much change to the kind of structures that their predecessors set up. I mean, there was a period when they were in power previously, when they had a, um, a research minister, uh, Kim Carr, who was a historian and, and committed to defending the humanities and making universities work. And he was very supportive. But, you know, he only had so much power within Cabinet, and um, every time we managed to get an idea up front and I was involved in a lot of this at the time, something would happen, you know. We managed to get a lot of research money for the humanities agreed to, and then the GFC hit, for instance, and Kevin Rudd ruled a line through it. So it's been a tough fight, and, and I think academics have increasingly lost ground. It's a tough industry to work in now. Young people have uh, got very insecure jobs. A lot of them are... Patching together. It's a bit like it is it was in the States, the younger staff, where they're patching together jobs from different universities to make a living, but you know, no real prospect of what's going to happen in the future, no real basis to plan the research career. So, you know, that's a long rant, but it it has really um I I, I can't remember it being worse than it is now in terms of Whether the government even bothers to take this shit seriously, you know, that, that when, when I was involved in, in agitating for research funds for the amount of, you know, 10, 12 years ago now, I could actually get in to talk to the minister and I could actually pitch things and they would, they wouldn't necessarily do what I wanted, but they'd politely listen. No, they don't even bother to listen.
0: Give people some historical context. As in the US, constitutionally, education is a state's right in Australia, not a federal right. But getting back to that sudden nostalgia for Cold War, pig iron bob, the Menzies government set in place a couple of major public inquiries into the really not very good state of Australian higher education in the early 60s. And it became a bipartisan policy that basically the federal government would come in and fund these institutions because they were so patchy in quality as they relied on state treasuries. And that was a very benign, very positive move. What changed, and I think Ray Wen Connell's written quite well about this, is that the block grant system, whereby universities were just given money to do whatever they felt they needed to do, but for really big research projects they could apply to national institutions of health or medicine or whatever, there was a so-called clawback of this basic block grant to make universities in this new system you've described, the pretense of breaking down the class basis of universities, which didn't happen at all, but that was the pretense or the fantasy, such that quite small amounts of money became necessarily points of competition between academics at different universities. Now, at one level, you could say that this strengthened the hand of things like cultural studies, and you played a very benign and quite, in some ways, powerful, influential role in enabling cultural studies to get at the door to uh, attain some of these grants. But one might argue that the longer-term impact is this instrumentalism, utilitarianism required of cultural studies academics. And so for me, there's a nostalgia for the old Block Grant days. Am I being, because I haven't lived there for 30 years, out of touch and crazy? Or given that you were so involved in trying to make this system work for young people in cultural studies, do you think it's actually better now at that level? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah,
1: no, I'm. I'm I think... I share your nostalgia for the block grant. I must admit, um, because what what happened was in its place, where a couple of things happened. One, um, research got defined with a kind of medical model. You know, everything was was hypothetical and everything was was problem based. And so, idea that what you might write might be crit- criticism or or just study, <laughs> you know, that 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 was simply an indulgence, and you couldn't you couldn't fund that anymore. And so. Uh, All the the new universities had to prove they could do research and a lot of them didn't know much about research and had to make it up as they went along. They were competing for grants in the same process as everybody else. So while the pot of money didn't get much bigger, the number of people competing did. A lot of time was wasted applying for grants that you didn't get. And also the value of of the grants um, was inflated. So people who might have been able to do a reasonable project for $20,000 had to ask for 100000 in order for it to be eligible. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that happened that distorted um, the nature of what people wanted to do, in the, particularly in the humanities and the social sciences, in order to be able to enter the competition for the money that was available. And if you look back at it now, you'd say, actually, a lot of that money would have been better spent at the department level as part of the block grant handed out to people to do smaller projects and then have money set aside for for the really big, you know, discipline breaking things um, in another way. I mean, we had we had no choice. There was only one game we had to try and get into it. And so, like you say, you know, we had to spend a, a lot of time trying to get cultural studies a seat at the table, which we did. But it's getting tougher now, you know, it the number of, of the percentage of, of success rates um but the success rate percentage-wise the people going for grants now has, has plummeted. And cultural studies and media studies in the areas where I worked um, is not doing so well. And I don't think it's, it, it hasn't had the, the kind of influence of leadership at the top in the last 10, 12 years, I suppose, that's meant that they've become politically noticeable. And so they're easy to set aside. And I think there are a lot of humanities disciplines now they're in that in that situation where they don't they don't seem to have clout <clears throat> um, and so they're expendable. and I think that it, it would be fair to say that that governments of both colours would see the humanities and social sciences as a bit of a pain in the arse and you know if something happened to them, they they'd shed crocodile tears, but it wouldn't bother them a great deal at
0: all. And the designation for the head of universities in Australia, as in Britain and some other countries is vice chancellor. Even vice chancellors from those disciplines probably don't give a toss in many cases, I imagine, because they're people who are the creatures of their own bureaucratic success as much as people with a commitment to the idea of the university. And I guess it's, it's one of those things where you want to go back to the, the term university. <laughs> and just how cheapened that has become. I was recently asked to apply for a job as a dean somewhere, and I couldn't do it because when I read the prospectus, uh, every second world was world-class, world-leading bullshit. Oh, yeah. I thought, this just doesn't mean anything. Uh, these are just sets of cliches that people trot out, and yeah. uh, not having it, you know? It's not it's not me. Um
1: no, we've developed our own our own species of advertisement in, in higher education. We've got our own language, you know. In saying, you know, hundred percent brighter, we're saying we're world class and world leading.
0: I am um, sorry, Graham, I mean I have to go on an odyssey in terms of where the cat is and what mood he's in, because <laughs> um, he can open doors at a single bound. <laughs> <laughs> So getting back, pardon me, to these latest two books, the one on John Farnham, I wondered if you could just, for people who are younger slash not from Australia, if you could tell them a little bit about John Farnham, and then also if you could tell us a little bit more about the Shrinking Nation book. So starting with... Yeah, well, Farnham's a
1: really interesting case. He was he was a, a kind of teen idol when he was younger, with a couple of novelty hits that, that um made him very successful. But also Lady kind of The Cleaning yeah. Lady. That's right. So Did Sadie like the that? Cleaning Lady was like a like a George Formby musical <laughs> Indeed. song. You know, probably best sung with a ukulele. Anyway, so <laughs> he made that when he was about seventeen and 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 it was a you know, the best selling single for God knows how many years. And what happened to him? It's kind of a classic rock and roll story where he gets a manager who wants him to be successful, but decides he wants to make him an all-round entertainer. So he, you know, he does song and dance stuff. He goes into musicals. He does everything but play the kind of music that he wanted to play. So his career stiffs and he winds up playing in working men's clubs and and to small audiences who just want to hear him. Sing Sadie, the cleaning lady, and and are off. And, and in the end, nobody w- wants to, to support him. Nobody wants to record him. He gets thrown a bit of a lifeline to go off and be lead singer for the Little River Band, which in, in those days was a charting band in the US playing big arenas. First time a farmer had ever been seen in front of a rock band, so people were very sceptical, but it turned out to be an incredible front man, and he's an extraordinary singer. You know, always has been an extraordinarily good singer. So he did that for a few years. It taught him that he didn't want to be bossed around. And when he came back, he decided to make an album that would change everything. So it was the breakthrough album. And it, it coincided with with new uh, digital recording technologies, the greater use of keyboards and synths and so on. So it's actually quite an adventurous album musically. A lot of great songs on it and it had a bit a big hit single called You're the Voice, which is still, you know, one of the best-selling records ever and is used as a kind of anthem in every moment of national celebration um, you can think of. And so it's a a nice story of somebody persevering, getting getting past that rock idol stage into being an actual rock performer and then developing something that at that stage hadn't really happened in Australia, which was... Um, arena rock for Australian based artists. We had, we'd had really big stadium performances from, um, overseas artists, but not locals. And Farnham and later Tina Arena were the ones who really made that work. So it's a good story. And it's, it's, it's the album itself, um, which is called Whispering Jack was one that I've always liked. I ended up interviewing people who worked on the album. Couldn't interview Farnham, but worked with the musicians as the, the producer and the studio engineer and so on learned heaps about the technology and about the stories behind the song so it was fun because, because I, I mean what people probably don't know back in the um 80s i set up a record company in 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 perth and recorded a couple of albums the second of which i actually produced myself so i knew how all the all the dials worked and i was interested so it was it was great talking to these guys and David Hirschfelder, who was the keyboard's whiz behind the, the album, ended up going on to become a very substantial composer for film music. He, he did the music for Shine, for instance. So, you know, that was just great. Okay, so I did, I, I, I got a lot of pleasure out of it. I don't know how many copies sold, um, but it was it was fun to do it. And it just, it was fun to do a different kind of writing, I think, um, and that, that was just very enjoyable to do, so I took that into the shrinking nation.
0: Am I right in thinking that Farnham was a, a working-class English migrant? You know, at age five or whatever, he moves to Australia. Yeah, that's a, right. Yeah. So called ten pound. Yeah, so he was a plumber immediately before he became. A, he, he was a, a, a pop star. plumber. yeah. And they were the what were called ten pound poms. Is that the right? Yeah, One of those. So
1: where the. Yeah, he's baby, still, he's, you know, he's, He still kept a bit of that British accent. Actually, you can still hear a bit of. Maybe and that, and yeah. he
0: so he came over when he, I think he was about eleven. 11. Oh, oh, so a bit later, yeah. So this was a scheme whereby the Australian government, which wanted Wasps and Catholics from Britain, um, preferably wasps, but they got lots of Catholics as well, yeah. to move to Australia. So their movement, their migration was subsidized such that they paid 10 pounds. Um and, and nothing there. Right. So he's interesting in that he has a migrant background. Uh, and a working stiffs background. And I wonder if that, um, uh, was some of his appeal because part of it seems to me, and, you know, again, I'm speaking from a very great distance and so on, that uh, yes, he was an all-round entertainer, a bit like Tommy Steele in the British idiom. That's who I was thinking of when yeah. you mentioned moving from being a, a pop star to being an all-round entertainer or Barry Crocker would be another uh, yeah. case uh, in Australia. Uh, that he did maintain a sort of ordinary guy aspect to him throughout being yeah. a river band and moving on to this stadium rock. And I wonder if that's part of his appeal. Yeah, I think it is because
1: he was never he was never really rock and rolling in kind of, you know, he's, he's never a bad boy. You know, he was always the nice guy that you could take home to meet your mum. And, and I think that that, you know, differentiated him from some of the real, you know, heroes of rock and roll. And so it meant... I think that's one of the reasons why popular music studies never really got interested in John Farnham. Well, I mean, he was a bit too ordinary, a bit too average. And he a, made a big account. shift
0: from Johnny Farnham to John Farnham um, in an attempt to mature himself, as it were. But he, yeah. he was never quite a Bon Scott, was he?
1: No, no he was a long way from Bon Scott. But <laughs> it's funny, you know, watching, watching him live, he's a very good live performer and relates very well to his audience. but. He, he said once that he learned how to relate to an audience by working in the clubs, you know, going playing to people who didn't really want to be there. Yes. middle age audience often who weren't really music audiences, they just wanted to be entertained and he had to work out how to do that. And I think that that kind of shows in the way he deals with He's very personal uh, with, with his audience and he doesn't try at all to be cool. It's absolutely not a rock and roll bone. In his in his persona at all. It's just I'm an average guy who just sing these songs. You want to hear it, and it's only when he plays um, that you get the full rock star. And then you know the thing that he did that was probably also really important was he was one of the very few that decided he'd go out with a really big band. So he when he when he first went on the road with his album with Whispering Jack, he went out with a six piece band. But they discovered that they'd been booked into places that were too small. There was just so much interest, so they had to rebook into bigger arenas. And so I said, "Okay, let's get a bigger band." So by the end, he's touring with a ten-piece band. So he's got backup singers, a horn section, you know, the whole bit. And you know, and you know what a difference that makes. You know, if you're in the audience, you've got that size of a band, and it's been well, well run. You know, you've got a, a musical arranger who knows what they're doing. That's an awesome experience, and that was that was novel. That really hadn't happened in Australia before, except for maybe when Joe Cocker toured, you know, with you know the Leon Russell, you know, Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour. But before that, you know, I don't think anybody had seen that that scale of a rock band on stage.
0: So, picking up from the John Farnham record, uh, i was going to say John Farnham record. Picking up from the John Farnham book you decided that this was an idiom you were comfortable with and that helped to influence the shrinking nation. Let's talk about the book. Now we've already described the blog a bit. Could you tell us a bit about the book and what the difference was between the idiom of that uh, and the idiom of making the nation or film as social practice or national fictions, you know, books from the eighties and nineties, for example. Yeah, I guess.
1: It's interesting, actually, Toby. I, I, the publisher got me a, an editor, a non-fiction editor, to try and, and help me make that, as they put it, to get rid of the academies out of out of my writing. And I said, okay, we'll see what this is. What they meant, though, is getting rid of, of a lot of the signposts that we make, you know, say, as I was saying before, or as you all have read earlier, you know, there are all those little signposts yeah. that um, that pepper our writing and structure it, and when we like to have our readers know what's coming next and in what order and so on. The non-fiction editor didn't want any of that. And what I got the sense of was that um, it was speed that mattered. You know, you had to maintain the pace. The reader didn't care all that much about being prepared as long as you kept them moving. And so the other thing he, he, he was um, keen to talk me into doing was Writing not just persuasively, but in a, but in a conversational way, so that it, I was still using the same kind of evidence and the same kind of, I guess argumentative strategies I would use in my academic writing. But the conversational tone changed the way in which that worked and and the idea was that it was actually inviting readers closer in to the argument and making it uh, I guess, more persuasive. So, um, you know, at my age, it was kind of interesting to learn a few new tricks. And, um, and it's, you know, this, this editor, who's a young guy, was great because he, he he loved everything that I wanted to say. There was never any question about whether I could say what I wanted to say. He just wanted me to learn a few ways to make it more accessible to non academic readers. And it, it was, it was interesting. It was easier when I was just writing about politics as the first chapter of the book is about about the, the culture of politics and it talks specifically about the shrinking leadership you know the crap leaders that Australia's had over the last 20 years and how each of them kind of shrank into the job rather than grew in it over over their, their tenure and that was actually easier to write like that because it was much more like I was talking to somebody than when I got into talking about changes in the media because I talk about the way in which um the construction of community through media, change through social media, and what was what was that likely to do? And because that was much more in my academic warehouse, um, he was picking up lots more academies as I went through that. And said, "No, you've got to you've got to start further back and um, take people with you rather than assume they know things." So they're the kind of changes that occurred in terms of what the book was doing. It was really trying to channel my sense of frustration at how um, how debilitating politics had been for any kind of decent social policy um, in Australia. And not just social policy, but policy around the environment, race, gender, you know, the, the range of issues where policy had been shunted away by bad politics Um, and when you started to add them up which is what I was doing in the book you know this is what's happening these are the consequences and it's affecting this this and this when you started to do that each list got really long so um, it it, it, it became something that did require a book to work through rather than just a bunch of op-eds or something like that and um
0: Getting back to the, this issue of, sort of deracinated leadership, one of the figures that interests me in this is Malcolm Turnbull. Um, Turnbull came from a pretty underprivileged background but made a lot of money, very young, and became leader of the Liberal Party and prime minister in the midst of all the things you're describing, but actually isn't a bastard like the rest of those people, as far as I no. can tell, in that... Mm-hmm. Uh, prog- in progressive terms, he's in favour of a republic, uh, and he's in favour of more rights to political representation for Aboriginal people, for example. So, where does he fit in that sort of schema of the shrinking nation?
1: Yeah, he was. It's well, he well, he's an example of somebody who shrank into the job, but for, in, in different ways and, and for different reasons. So when when he came, um, when he Uh, was elected leader of of their party and and prime minister. There was a lot of hope by people in the centre and and the left uh, in Australia that he would be a more old-fashioned, moderate liberal leader. But, of course, that very fact made him anathema to most of the people in the right in his own party. And so he had to do all kinds of deals in order to get that position with people on the right. That meant that when he actually got into power, his freedom of movement to actually implement any of the policies that people would have identified him with was very limited. And he was being, being, um, ha- hounded by, by Tony Abbott on, on one side and Morrison and Dutton on the other side. So he had a lot of enemies within the party. He'd been elected leader because he was seen as being electable for, for, at, for a national federal election and seen as popular amongst the population but he wasn't popular within his party and so as soon as he tried to do anything that represented his views he hit trouble and of course he ended up having a a group of ministers around him who uh, were spending almost all their time plotting (laughs) about getting rid of him and, and lying to him and pretending to be his chum and of course wide handing him all over the time and you only have to read his, his his book to to see how bitter he is about it and how 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 he was deceived you know he, he admits that he was just fooled by these people who were just better at that kind of vicious politics than he was
0: you mentioned a great metaphor that he shrank into the job I wondered if you could paradoxically expand on that notion of shrinking that forms the title of the the book and is crucial to your thinking in the blog also. Uh, here's a vast country with relatively small population numerically, biggest island in the world, most of which is difficult to inhabit because it's so arid, and one of the most urban countries in world history.
1: Yeah, I guess the the kind of motto of the book in a way is that Australia is, is, um, has become less than it was Uh, less than it could be and less than it should be, and a whole range of areas in things like the stance they've taken on environmental policy, in the way in which they dealt with asylum seekers, uh, in the way in which they've, they've dragged their feet over, um, issues around gender and domestic violence. There is, you know, we've had the, we've had the, the vote on the referendum on, on, on the voice, which again, you know, showed a kind of diminished Sense of generosity from uh, the politicians. I don't necessarily mean the people, but the, the way in which politicians use that as a kind of short-term political gain. Uh, none of that speaks well of Australia. So the argument behind the book was: Look, this is a country that has lots of potential and has has lots of possibility, and has you know has lots of things to be proud of in the past. When you look at what's happened in the last twenty years or so. There's a lot less to be proud of. There's a lot less hope about changes in political structures that would produce a better Australia. And there's actually a lot less interest among the political class and amongst the media in doing the things that would produce a better Australia. So, it's you know, it is a kind of big argument that's being made, but it's also when you start to look at the areas where concern should be directed, there are a lot of them. And they all have the same kind of characteristic, which is a a contraction, a diminution of possibility, a diminution of responsibility and and care for what's going to happen to the country.
0: Graham, I've got a couple more questions for you, and then I'd like to throw it to you to add anything that we haven't addressed or to comment further on something that we have, anything that we have. So my first question is in a sense a boring one. And it's how to do research, how to do cultural research of the kind that you favour. What do you think are the best ways of going about it?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I actually got asked that question. I did an interview for for a podcast um, with the guys from The Chaser for, for Shrinking Nation. And and they they said, Well, how did you research this book? And my answer was I just read everything, watched everything <laughs> I could think of. It. Uh. And it's it's still a pretty good answer, I think. And it, you know, you you'd be one who'd agree with that, that that I I never just read academic research. I, I always read what was being written in the newspapers yes. and said on television and and so on, and tried to cast my net as wide as possible. I think on the other hand that that makes the task of research kind of infinite and there has to be a point where you have to arbitrarily say I've done enough you know I think I've got this now I think I'm going to be able to do it and um one of the things when I was looking after postdocs was was getting them to to say okay I'm ready now I've I've got enough I can do it I can live with the consequences if there's an article coming out next week that I haven't been able to include <laughs> and of course, they did have to live with those consequences. So, yeah, I think with cultural research, there are, the thing is there are no boundaries and there are no set paths. There are obvious paths to go down first, but you can find yourself diverted. I remember when I was doing some research on celebrity, and and Kathy Lumby was talking about what was happening online, which I'd not even seen. I found myself disappearing down these weird rabbit holes. Of, of, uh, people who were setting up those early, you know, Jenny Cam and things like that were being set up in the early days. If I hadn't looked at that, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have easily understood what was going on amongst a large proportion of the audience that was using um, that material online. So you just have to look at as much as you can and be aware that there are limitations. And so what you say. It's always going to be limited in terms of the frame of reference that you can call on. You know, you need to be aware of just what the limits of it are.
0: I think that's great because, A, it gets us away from being too bounded by disciplines uh, and instead looking at, you know, the best that has been thought and said, as it were. But Mm -hmm. it also emphasises the need at some point to have a cutoff and just say, well, now I'm going to commit. So my my last question, Graham, is another, in a sense, difficult one, perhaps more difficult, which is to ask you about the present and future state of cultural studies.
1: Yeah, well, it's not looking good in Australia, I have to say, that um, for a long time the the level of institutionalisation of cultural studies in Australia was a was a kind of protective blanket. It it did enable us to get a lot of support and it did enable us to be secure and more support we got to get grants and so on, the better we looked. I think that um, a lot of changes happened. There are a lot of competitors for that space developing. Creative Industries was a competitor, but I think Creative Industries got elbowed aside by people working on digital media. And uh, now you know there's talk about a computational turn about people starting to look at the way algorithms work, and so on. all of all of which is work that's important. But one of the real dangers I think that cultural studies uh, has in front of it, uh, and probably always had to a greater or less extent, is that as it became more of a discipline, it did it did break up into smaller subdisciplines that became very interested in themselves, and so. You know, the original idea of, and, and, and still an idea that a lot of cultural studies writers are driven by is to talk about the larger picture, to talk about, you know, the real problems, the real enemies. My, my example is, for instance, here in Australia, there's a, a television show called The Project that has a really interesting young academic called Waleed Ali, who's a very good commentator on public affairs. And he speaks to a Channel 2 audience, which is a middle class, mainstream popular audience and so he's got to gear what he says to that so you know I, I was really annoyed when i saw somebody within cultural studies devoting time to writing a piece critiquing this guy for not quite getting it right and you think if of all the commentators out there in australia who need to be criticized who are not getting it right in a big way and are damaging people as a result you know you'd put Wale dali right down the bottom of the list so it's that it's that kind of you know, that, that's what happens when a discipline starts to to think only about itself and stops thinking about the larger project. And I think that's all, you know, that's the thing that you and I have talked about in the past. Now you know, Larry Greisberg and I have talked about it in the past too. Megan's talked about it. You know, it's a concern for a lot of us. But it's very difficult, very difficult to manage when, once you enter into the academic game, It's all about publications. It's all about finding a niche. It's all about developing a particular track record in a particular area. And that runs against, you know, some of the broader heroic projects of the humanities and social sciences, which are about making knowledge do work for the rest of the society.
0: I, uh, you know, just finished uh, some years on the research excellence framework of the British government in the, media, communication, cultural studies spot. I was one of a group of, I don't know, 20, 25 people. And as you know, our job was to evaluate published work that was submitted by universities to show off their wares and get a score for their department. And the utter triviality and Grubby instrumentalism of so much of this work astonished me. there was almost nothing of interest because nothing grasping big questions and as you know, you can grasp a big question by writing about a poem it the object that you're writing about doesn't have to determine the discourse or vice versa no. yeah. but heavens to heavens above uh, the triviality is staggering. Anyway. You-
1: yeah, it was a similar, I mean, we had a similar problem when the the equivalent process happened here. Uh, it took us a few runs at it to to deal with that and it actually involved in refusing submissions from some universities because the material they were listing under cultural studies was so meretricious and so irrelevant, not just to the discipline, but, you know, comprehensively. <laughs> irrelevant that they needed to be punished and so we actually did have some success in getting that um, through the heads of the deputy vice chancellor research people in the universities and so they did they stopped doing it to us but yeah I mean one of the problems in that kind of uh, instrumental teaching of how to do research is that it produces an idea that research is about getting published it's not about what you actually do.
0: That I, I should say that in my case, I was such an outlier with my lower valuations that everything I graded had to <laughs> be rounded up. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was um, I was one of the hard men of league, Graham. <laughs> uh, good for you, Toby. There's got
1: there's got to be one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, in the British football idiom, I was Chopper Harris, a sort of famous Chelsea, uh, scrappy, vicious, nasty fullback who never got to play for England because he was so awkward and so unpleasant on the pitch, leaving a trail of busted shin bones and bloodied legs and so on. So thank you very much for answering those two quite complicated questions. So now just to finish up, I'd like to invite you to add anything that you wish to do. Yeah, look, I'm not
1: sure there's anything that I'm urgently wanting to add. I guess... Yeah, if you hadn't asked about the state of the universities in Australia, I would have. I would have wanted to talk about that. I guess looking back at it all now, and, and you know the various battles I've been involved in in trying to get the universities to take cultural studies seriously, then achieving that to a great extent, and then seeing it fall away, one of the things that is staggering, I think, is how quickly those advances um, can be eroded. That a lot of the battles that you have uh, you might win for the time, but you don't win them permanently. there. And I think that in critical disciplines like this, that kind of battle against institutions is constitutive, you know, and people need to recognise that, that you've got to be in it for the long haul because it doesn't change. And what you were saying when we were talking earlier about the situation uh, you're seeing in in, in Spain, is you know, a good example that you just have to continue a fight and... It's no wonder people get tired. <laughs> it's a tough thing to do.
0: Well, thank you, Graham. You have been such a generous supporter of so many of us, as well as being a, an astounding academic in your own right. It's been great chatting to you, and I'd like to invite you back into the pod sometime again in, in the future to talk about the evolution of your blog and other things that you get involved in. And maybe no, That would be great. Maybe we could get John Farnham to come in and we could have a round table.
1: (laughs) That'd be fun. But it's great to talk to you, Toby. It's um, it's been too long. Look after yourself. Thank you so much, Chris.